You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Camper Mundy, associate pastor here, and I too would like to extend my welcome to those of you who may be visiting with us. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Now, for those of you who are regulars, we're back in the book of James. You may have forgotten that, but we're here again. Uh, We've been in the Gospel of Luke the past couple of Sundays, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, but here we are back in James. And if you remember, the overall theme of James, of this series, our sermon series, is faith works. In other words, faith goes to work. Faith in Jesus Christ expresses itself in good deeds. Uh, That's what Steve and Meg were up here talking about. God has done a work in their lives, and now it is being expressed through their lives. True faith bears real fruit. Now, several weeks ago, I told you a little bit about my mom when I was growing up and my discovery that she had a hard time keeping plants alive. I don't know if you remember that. But then how just a few years ago, she had this one plant and she was so proud of it because she wasn't killing it. Uh, She watered it regularly, put it near the window, it was getting enough sunlight, and she was really excited about this. And uh, as I told you, she was dusting one day, and she got closer to the plant, and she looked and felt the leaves and realized it was an artificial plant. No real life. And that's really what James is concerned about here. He doesn't want us to be deceived. He wants us to realize that true faith is not an artificial thing. It is alive and it bears real fruit. Well, this week we move into chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, the English Standard Version, it's found on page 1012. And early on in this letter, uh, James speaks of true religion, uh, basically referring to genuine faith or true faith, uh, particularly it's outward expression. It's visible manifestation. And if you remember in chapter one, he gives us three marks or three fruits of this true faith. Care for the poor, control of the tongue, and keeping ourselves from conformity to the world. And we've already looked at the first two. uh, Care for the poor and control of our tongue. And today we begin to consider this third mark, this third fruit of genuine faith, keeping ourselves from conformity to the world. So our text this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And in just a moment, I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read it in its larger context. Since we've been out of James for a couple of weeks, I'm going to actually back up into chapter 3 where we last were. Uh, I think it will help us better hear this passage today. But let's take a moment to pray before we hear God's word. Our God, we need to hear from you today. Not that we would just have more good thoughts to store away in our minds, but that you would continue a transforming work in our hearts and in our lives, and that it would overflow through our lives into the lives of others. And so would you this morning open your word to us and us to your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of God from James chapters 3 and 4, beginning in verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, his beautiful life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every, and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, by peacemakers. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. Well, this morning, as we journey into this first part of chapter 4, this warning against worldliness, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that there's a problem, there's a reason for the problem, and there's a solution to the problem. A problem, a reason, and a solution. So first, the problem. Picking up in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now note, the passage begins with a question. And the question is not, are there fights among you? But rather, why are there fights among you? What causes them? You see, there is conflict within the body of Christ, in the church. And James is going to explore why. James explains that it is because your passions are at war within you. Now, yes, there are good passions, legitimate desires that God puts in our hearts. But here, the Greek word used here for passions is where we get our English word hedonism. It connotes sinful, self-indulgent pleasure. Simply put, selfish desires. Selfish desires are at war within you. And one commentator notes, selfish passions make believers wage war within themselves. As their desire to serve Christ and neighbor conflicts with the desire to serve self. And then this internal conflict eventually boils over into external conflict. Fights between brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And we know all about this. We've experienced it. We've been a part of it. And James uses strong words here. Murder, fight. And though it's unlikely that the people were actually killing themselves, Jesus tells us that there is murderous anger in our hearts that kills. And then the word used here for fights refers to verbal conflict, verbal combat. Now, yes, there are causes worth fighting for, causes that we should stand up for. But the sad thing is, so often our fighting is born out of selfish desires rather than noble causes. Now, many of you know that uh, Brandon and I have been friends for quite some time. And uh, we, we first met when we were serving together in campus ministry down in North Carolina. And about 10 years ago, uh, we were having one of our annual area conferences for the college students that we served. There were four tracks the students could sign up for. Uh, Brandon was leading one of the tracks. I was leading another. And the staff, of course, arrived to the, the place where we were holding the conference, which was not a beautiful conference center, but rather a quite rustic campground. Uh, we arrived there early on Friday afternoon so that we could set up before the students got there that evening. And the track that I was leading typically got, relatively speaking, a nicer classroom than the track that Brandon was leading. Now, Brandon very innocently asked if maybe we could discuss trading classrooms this year. Well, I didn't really appreciate that suggestion. Uh, in fact, I became very defensive and I bristled and then Brandon bristled. And the next thing you know, there is a war of words going on between us. Conflict between brothers in Christ, friends who know the gospel, who have been showered by grace and we are going at each other. Now, I remember Brandon telling the story a few years ago and he said, man, it's a good thing Rochelle stepped in because we might have gone to not from verbal blows, but to physical blows. Now, I don't know if it would have gone that way, and Brandon's fortunate it didn't. Um, I'll meet you out back after the service. But, you know, we, we had to have a Christian sister step in to mediate. And this was it, what was going on within us, selfish desires, murderous anger, a horrible witness to the goodness of God's grace. And so to paraphrase James, there is conflict among you because there is conflict within you. And these first couple of verses in chapter four give us a good picture of what we looked at a few weeks ago, the foolish living or worldly wisdom, uh, described, uh, described in chapter 3. I just want to skim that briefly. Verse 14, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Wisdom. We were looking a few weeks ago at these two types of wisdom, the worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And do you remember the first time we heard about wisdom from James? One of the very first things he wrote to us about, all the way back in chapter 1, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, 
and it will be given him. And then James goes on to say that we should ask in faith as those looking to and trusting in Jesus. And he says that people who ask otherwise, seeking to manipulate God, to control him, to use him, not truly trusting in him, that they should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, for they are double-minded, unstable in all their ways. Okay, back to chapter 4. Take a look at the end of verse 2 and into chapter and into verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We see that people in the church don't have wisdom because they do not ask God for it. And when they do ask, those who do ask not in faith, but out of selfish desire, and thus they don't receive because they're double-minded, trying to use God. So the problem is before us. Worldly wisdom born out of selfish desires. Well, that's the problem. Now the reason, the reason for our problem, verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Quite the accusation and quite the contrast from the way that James has been speaking to us. Throughout the letter so far, James has referred to us as brothers and sisters, a term, term of endearment for, for family members, even my beloved brothers and sisters. And then given that James has just warned us about control of the tongue, taming the tongue, we know that he's being quite intentional here in what he says. In the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, James is accusing God's people of spiritual adultery. Jeremiah states, Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. And then Jesus, in the New Testament, himself calls those who reject him a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, one of the things that we enjoy in in the life of the church are weddings. And Grace Covenant, this this building has weddings every summer. There are at least a couple already lined up for this summer. And can you imagine being in here, a beautiful day, Saturday afternoon for a wedding, and the pastor is up here with a, a young man and a young woman, and he, he pronounces them husband and wife, presents them to you, the congregation, and then they leave, they process out. We remain singing the closing hymn, and there's just that wonderful moment, the first moment they have together by themselves in the commons, no one else around, just the two of them. And can you imagine if all of a sudden a, another young man enters the commons and the new bride says to her new husband, Oh, honey, I want you to meet my other lover. As one pastor has said, just as no husband tolerates a wife who takes on another lover, 
so the Lord will not tolerate other lovers. You adulterous people. In essence, James declares, you are married to Jesus, and yet you are sleeping with the world. Christ dwells in your heart, and yet you invite other loves into it. God's Spirit clothes you in righteousness, and yet you run after worldly values. Friendship with the world is sleeping with the enemy. It's adultery, plain and simple. Now, friendship. Think of the word friendship for a moment. Now, we, we use it really quite casually today, often speaking of, of casual acquaintances. But not so in the days of James. Uh, one historian notes, In antiquity, true friends shared a mindset and an outlook on life. They shared interests, values, and goals. They saw life in much the same way. They shared goods as necessary. They cared for each other and worked together. Their lives were bound together as one. Now, we can be friendly. We can be friendly towards anybody. And we should. We should extend kindness and concern towards other people. But we cannot be true friends with the world. We must reject worldly values. Now, what are some of those values? Let me just highlight two. Acquisition and accomplishment. Our world values acquisition. Happiness is defined by what you own or the experiences you have, what you acquire. Our world also values accomplishment. Your value and position are gained by making something of yourself. Getting a good education, which some of our students are doing now, and Then you go out and you work hard and you reach your goals. Accomplishment, acquisition. Accomplishment and acquisition. Now, in and of of themselves, are these bad things? No. No, these aren't wrong. In fact, we should make the most out of the, the gifts and the skills and the opportunities that God gives us. But we cannot befriend the world by defining people by acquisition and accomplishment. We cannot befriend the world by defining people according to what they have, what they've done, their station in life. To do so, according to James, is to make ourselves an enemy of God. To do so is to commit spiritual adultery. In verse 5, Verse 5, which doesn't quote a specific Bible, verse verse 6 does, but verse 5 rather summarizes a biblical theme. And here's the most literal translation I can give you. The Spirit, which He calls to dwell in us, desires us with jealousy. The Spirit, which He calls to dwell in us, desires us with jealousy. You see, our God is a jealous God. The Bible tells us that. He will not tolerate other lovers. So what are we to do? Well, that brings us to our final point, the solution. What's the solution to our problem? Verse 6. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you see it? The solution. Well, for us to see it, we need to look again into the mirror. Do you remember when we did that? Uh, We spoke uh, uh, several weeks ago about this gospel key, and it's worth repeating. At the end of February, we saw James liken God's word, the Bible, to a mirror. Now, before that, James exhorts, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But James understands that first we must hear, or rather see, as in a mirror. And then we do. Okay, here's the point. God's word shows you who you are before it tells you what to do. Knowing this is central to understanding the book of James. Knowing this is central to understanding the Bible. In fact, knowing this is central to living out the gospel. God's word always shows you who you are before it ever tells you what to do. Being comes before doing. In other words, our doing flows out of our being, who we are. As I said before, simply doing Christian stuff doesn't make you a Christian. Not any more than being in a garage makes you a car, being in a barn makes you a cow. It's about a heart change, a heart change that gets expressed through an active faith. And when you look in the mirror of the Bible, you'll see two things. As one pastor puts it, you'll see that you are radically fallen And you will see that you are infinitely exalted. You will see that you are radically fallen due to sin. And you will see that you are infinitely exalted through faith in Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, you see that you are messed up just like everyone else. We are all in the same sinking boat. You need a Savior. The person next to you needs a Savior. You are radically fallen and thus in radical need of Jesus. On the other hand, you see that you are valued just like everybody else. Everybody has worth. Christ died for you. Christ died for the person next to you. Through faith in Jesus, you are infinitely exalted. So what about today, chapter 4, these first six verses? As, As we look into the mirror of God's word, what do we see? Well, on the one hand, we see that we are an adulterous people, lovers of the world, unfaithful to God, full of infidelity. But on the other hand, as we look into God's word, we see that we are a loved people, that we are loved by God, who rather than despise us for our unfaithfulness, still desires us. The spirit that he placed within us desires jealously for us. He desires us. He pursues us. He gives us grace. Isaiah declares, the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. And one theologian states, the Lord, like a good husband, woos his faithless wife instead of seeking divorce. And the Lord woos us in his gospel. The Lord woos us with these words. He gives more grace. 
God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. In love, God showers His favor on those who will receive it. God showers His favor on the humble. The humble. Humility. Think about that word for a a minute. Humility. Something we all struggle with. Humility is a posture of the heart. And humility is a posture of receiving. Several years ago, I was having breakfast with a good friend of mine, uh, a much older believer than, than me. He'd been walking with Jesus uh, many more years, and so he'd been spending a good amount of time with me, shepherding my heart in the ways of the gospel. And we were getting together for breakfast. We hadn't seen each other for, for several weeks. Uh, it was the end of the summer. He'd been away for for work and vacation. I'd been away for work and vacation. And so finally we were together again. It was at breakfast. And, and I knew that Ty deeply cared for me, that he, that he loved me, that he was, he was always pointing me to Jesus. And as we were having this conversation over breakfast, he was listening between the lines because he sensed something wasn't right with my heart. And he listened to the words I was saying. And I'll never forget when he interrupted me and he said, Camper, you don't receive very well, do you? You see, he was listening and what he heard was I was trying to to earn his favor. I was trying to, to earn the right to be cared for by him. And so he just bluntly put it, you don't receive very well, do you? And then he went on to say, Receiving is at the heart of the gospel. If you don't learn to receive, you will never understand grace. If you don't learn to receive, you will never understand grace. He was calling me to a posture of humility. And that's the same thing that James is doing here. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In the words of pastor and professor Dan Doriani, if we humble ourselves, if we admit that we sin and that we are sinful, and that we cannot reform ourselves, then, James promises, the Lord will lift us up. James does not mention the atonement of Christ the cross of Christ, or even the resurrection of Christ. He states the gospel his own way, a way deeply influenced by the teachings of Jesus, his brother and his Lord. James says there is an antithesis, a choice between two ways of life, a way of selfish ambition and a way of purity and peace. We can be a friend of God or a friend of the world. We can be proud and arrogant or humble and repentant. Jesus says everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And James says later in chapter four, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. When we grieve over our sins and turn to him in faith, he extends his redeeming 
and sustaining grace. When we come to God in repentance and humility, He forgives us and lifts us up. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is founded on grace. And we receive that grace in humility. We don't receive that grace standing with closed fists, standing in our own strength, swallowed up by pride. It's with open hands and open hearts, a posture of humility. The Christian life is not about self-reliance, but about grace-reliance. And God gives grace to the humble. This is the gospel according to James. And this is the gospel according to our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.